This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. The world has shared a few artists who are more than performers. They are also mentors and, in some cases, lifesavers. And so it was with master violinist and humanitarian Isaac Stern. In his lifetime, he championed the talents of many young musicians, including Itzhak Perlman, Pinkas Zuckerman, and Yo-Yo Ma. He also worked tirelessly to save and preserve Carnegie Hall when the performance hall was in jeopardy. But it is at this point that I have to reflect upon the fact that Isaac Stern also saved the life and artistry of my first husband, an extraordinarily talented Ukrainian violinist. My husband was then studying with the renowned Russian violinist David Oistrakh. In the early 1970s, with help from Oistrakh, Isaac Stern discovered and was influential in helping my husband defect from the Soviet Union. He also loaned him a violin to begin his career outside of the USSR, as he had to relinquish the state-owned instrument that the Russian government had equipped him with. Isaac Stern was instrumental in the molding of his distinguished career that followed, which included my husband's private studies with Yasha Heifetz. My husband, Arkady, often spoke of Isaac Stern as being the man who literally saved his life. Stern was known for his beautiful playing, but he was also equally renowned for his causes, whether it was saving Carnegie Hall or preserving the futures of those like my husband. So in a roundabout way, I feel that I have been touched by the Stern family, and it is with some irony right now that I am sitting next to Isaac Stern's son, Michael, who, moving forward on his own incredible path, is continuing the legacy of music-making at the highest possible level. Michael Stern is the music director and conductor of the Kansas City Symphony and founder and conductor of the Iris Orchestra in Germantown, Tennessee. But more importantly, he has just accepted the position of music director and principal conductor of the Stanford Symphony in Connecticut. The symphony held a three-year search to find the right person who would elevate their stature, and they have found that leader with the pedigree of Michael Stern. The maestro has served as conductor of hundreds of notable orchestras in North America and Europe, from the Chicago Symphony to the London Philharmonic. Not bad for a guy who started out studying American history at Harvard. And even though at one point his father may have suggested to him to pursue something other than music, it is now our good fortune that Michael Stern couldn't stay away from his own distinguished music-making. I am thrilled to welcome onto center stage Michael Stern. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Delighted Thank- to be with you. Um, I'm going to have to push back on one thing, though. I didn't start out with American history because by the time I got to the university, I was about 18 years old. So I think I started out with finger-painting and learning the alphabet. <laughs> I mean, if we're going to be accurate. Um, I want to be accurate on this show. Well, by all means, I did study American. I came out of of college with a degree in American history, but I think that came sort of later in my studies. I love it. I love it. Why Harvard? They accepted me. (laughs) (laughs) I applied and they accepted me. Um, It was one of um, a few schools I applied to and I, uh, I went there happily for four years. That's fantastic. But always, I, I read somewhere that always when you were doing other studies, you know, you, you were departing from music partially, but you always had music in your life. You were a violinist and pianist, and you were actually doing more study in music while you were at Harvard. Well, know, again, in the spirit else. of full disclosure, I studied the piano forever, but I was never really a pianist. Uh-huh. I, was, I played at the piano, and I say that because 
too many of my really, really close friends are truly great <laughs> pianists, so I would not insult them by saying that I play I play at the piano. Um, I was a string player. I started playing <clears throat> I started playing the violin when I was about three and a half. Wow, and played pretty consistently all the way through college mm. um, with a couple of notable moments of rebellion. Um, I was at Juilliard pre-college and just announced at some point that I did not want to study um, anymore at Juilliard pre-college. And then I came back. I resumed my studies with Dorothy DeLay. And then um, in, I think, the first or second year of college, maybe I played a little bit less. Mm -hmm. But I I, I played for a little bit in the school orchestra there at at Harvard, and I played uh, chamber music all the time. Really what happened playing-wise is that I ran across a book by the noted conductor and pedagogue Max Rudolph, Mm -hmm. and I became completely obsessed with this book, and I sought him out. He happened to have been um, a friend of the family and uh, a colleague, and so I applied to him simply to study with him privately, and he said, yes, I could come and work with him, but you know, I live in Philadelphia, you should do something Mm -hmm. while you're in Philadelphia. And so um, just that year when I was talking to him about continuing my studies, I graduated from college in 1981. Um, The Curtis Institute had lost some string players, notably violists. And I I started playing the viola there at Curtis because they needed... So Curtis is a, a unique place. It's one of the premier conservatories mm-hmm. in the country, in the world, actually. But they have just the, the number of students to form one large symphony orchestra, not more, not less. So uh, because of a change in the faculty, there had been one of the teachers had passed away, and some of the students who had been assigned to other student, to other teachers didn't want to stay at the school. So all of a sudden, they had this gap in the orchestra. They needed people to Hmm. flesh out the orchestra. And they took people off their waiting list and it wasn't enough. And so when I came simply, I I had no idea. I I was not interested in going back to graduate school necessarily. Mm -hmm. But um, I thought I would audit some courses and maybe play some chamber music. And, but I wanted to live in in Philadelphia to really work with this conductor who I, I was totally inspired by. And, um, out of the blue, the then director of the school, John Delancey, said, of course you play the viola. And I, <laughs> lying through my teeth, said, of course. Of course of I course. do. Mm-hmm. So I cobbled together an audition and uh, came back and auditioned for Joseph De Pasquale, who was then the principal violist of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And I spent five years at Curtis, three ex- two exclusively as a player, mm-hmm. the last two exclusively as a conductor, and the middle year straddled both. So I had three years as a player as sort of a certificate program and then three years in the conducting program. Because when I entered Curtis, there was no conducting program. But Max Rudolph had taught at the Curtis Institute of Music when Rudolph Serkin had been the director Mm -hmm. 10 years before. Mm -hmm. So he was then asked to come back. I was working with him right from the beginning when I was only a player at Curtis. And in the third year, he came back to the school and restarted the conducting program 
So I was in that inaugural class Brilliant. of the new chapter. So that worked out pretty well for me. So this book that Max Rudolph wrote was The Grammar of Conducting. Yes. What was it that spoke to you? So, yeah, this is a, a lovely moment of grace in my life because I what spoke to me about the book was that it was incredibly, on one hand, hard-headed and practical mm. in terms of the information that it was imparting. And it was never didactic or clinical because it was always filtered through how whatever information was being transmitted about a technical issue, how it served the higher art, either the expressiveness of what the music demanded or a way to elicit a specific response. And <clears throat> Max's whole philosophy of conducting, which I love and I find... Um, not necessarily adhered to by everyone, is that conducting should not be general. He, he, that was his mantra. Hmm. So uh, he used to say amateur conductors give, give general gestures to get a general response. Really great conductors use specific means to elicit specific responses, and music should be specific. And that really resonated with me. So wow. I... And and so that's a combination of, um, you know, conductors don't make sound. So everything has to be digested through the prism of your learning first what's on the page, your understanding of what those notes mean and why they're there, and then your imagination at your desk or, you know, in mm -hmm. your head mm -hmm. of how that might actually come to fruition once you're having it played by the people who are playing with you and um, and figuring out how to make that happen in the most efficient way. And so that seemed such a wonderfully logical, <laughs> practical thing. Of course. Um, that I wanted to learn as much about that as I could. And one of the nicest things, he had written that book originally in 1950. I think he started it in 1948 or 50. And he revised it in the 70s when he was teaching at Curtis after I studied with him and after I had left the school and my first job was as, as the assistant conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra, he was approached by Shermer publishers to write a third edition. And by now he was in his late 80s and mm. didn't mm. feel he had the strength to do it alone. And he asked me to co-edit that new edition, which was a real labor of love for me and really was a way of bringing things with him full circle because yeah, yeah. the book was published before he passed away and he did see it in print and he was very proud of it. Um, and it made me very happy to be able to give that back to him in that way. How divine. And I love it that he speaks of the grammar of conducting. And right now you're talking about the specifics, which really is about communication. Well, I think sometimes people lose sight about the fact that music is communication because it's a language. Mm -hmm. And language is not amorphous. It's not a collection of sound, even though sound is an integral part of music making. But sound in and of itself is not that interesting to me. Uh, the sound always has to serve the phrase. The sound always has to serve the larger mm -hmm. meaning. Mm -hmm. So if you take that as a conceit, the idea of music having grammar, syntax, mm -hmm. structure, no less than a poem would or an article or an essay or a novel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And honestly, there are some large-scale works. Not not opera. Opera is a different thing because it's a mixture of theater and lighting and all sorts of things and takes on a different dimension there. But if you take a really large work, I mean, Gura Lieder or a Mahler symphony or a mm-hmm. Bruckner symphony, if you don't see first and foremost the forest before you start to worry about the trees, mm-hmm. the piece is not going to hang together and it's not the composer's intention. And Max was a big, big insisting influence um, on respecting the written text first and foremost, not to be tied to it slavishly, but to honor and respect the intentions of the composers as best as we know. Mm -hmm. And anybody who says that they know what composers wanted, composers who were born 200 and 300 and even 100 years ago, are lying because you can't know what Beethoven really wanted. We're not, mm-hmm. We were not around. Mm-hmm. But with a lot of study and with intuition and with knowledge about performance practice and knowing what the instrument sounded like and then having a sense of what other people were writing at the time, you start to use your best judgment and you make informed choices. Mm-hmm. And then performances take on a different dimension, I think. But you have to, you have to ground them in logic and then, of course... All performances at some point have to leave all that behind, mm-hmm. and it should sound like you are inspired at the moment. So everything that you work out or you understand analytically has to be at some point digested to the point of effortless spontaneity. spontaneity. And then, of course, we have the emotional reaction. Well, there's always that. Yeah, yeah there's always there's that, always too. There's always that. <laughs> but that, that's, what, that's what attracted me uh, to him. It was this incredible combination of deep soul an unbelievable, almost didactic German um, conscientious and study. And that precision, that yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it sounds to me like, you know, you rebelled a little bit. I mean, here you grew up in this incredible household of music with this titan uh, uh, of a father, as Isaac Stern. But it was a happy childhood, I'm sure. I mean, he... Okay. And no, 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 <laughs> no, of course it was. But I'm, I'm saying, you know... Parents are parents and children are children and, oh, the things we do to our children. But they recover and they're fine. Yes, I had an extraordinary childhood. I I wouldn't deny it. But not because there was music around. Maybe the distinguishing factor is that there was music around at that high a level. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But honestly, the real tragedy in our time is thinking that music can't be around or shouldn't be around or isn't around for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, you've quoted or talked about my father a lot. It's not something which I necessarily um, put forward as a, as a first uh, line of introduction. But mm-hmm. if we're talking about him, he always used to say people bash the arts as being elitist. And mm-hmm. he proudly said that he thinks they should be elitist because elitism means excellent excellence but he thinks that elitism should be for absolutely everybody in other words the excellence that that implies mm-hmm. has to be as democratic democratically and universally accessible and in an age as we are in now where there is so much dissemination of music electronically everywhere you look there's absolutely no reason why music not just music education but music deep down as a empowering 
force mm-hmm. should not be part of every single child's learning experience. And of course, you too feel lucky to be a musician and, and fortunate. I always feel lucky to be a musician. Yeah. yeah. We, yeah. Listen, how many people in the world can really say that they have as their vocation their avocation? Mm-hmm. Exactly. So. I- exactly. So after, after Curtis, um, how did you launch yourself? What was your first job? There was a program, now defunct, um, that I, I, I think it was partially underwritten by the National Endowment for the Arts, but it was the money, the seed money came from Exxon. Mm. And it was the Exxon Arts Endowment Program. I can't remember exactly the name. The Exxon Art. The words Exxon Arts and Endowment were in the title of this program. But um, and they decided to um, bankroll this project, which placed young people in either assistant conductor or associate conductor, but even conducting assistant roles, which meant one rung lower than an assistant conductor just to be around the orchestras, maybe mm-hmm. not have that much conducting. And and I auditioned straight out of Curtis. I was still at the school when the audition happened for Christoph von Dochnani, who became my boss and my mentor and a friend. Um, and he accepted me. And it, the program was originally supposed to be for a year or two, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I will say that I had been extremely well trained, both by Rudolf at Curtis and by um, a rather crazed Hungarian French conductor named Charles Brook, who, who had been Pierre Monteux's assistant for a while in the 50s. Pierre Monteux was a great French conductor who happened to have been the music director in San Francisco when my father was growing up. Oh, and it was with okay. him that my father first played in public at the age of 10. So here was this guy's assistant who then became a teacher of mine for several summers up at this program that bears Monta's name up in Hancock, Maine. So between the two of them, I had, I think, really good training. And I can honestly say I knew nothing, right, when I went to Cleveland because you really don't start to understand how to do it until you do it. And until then... um, conducting a lot at Curtis. It was still a student orchestra, a fabulous student orchestra, Mm -hmm. but still a student orchestra. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a completely different thing when you go to an orchestra, especially a legacy orchestra like Cleveland. Mm. And again, I was incredibly lucky in my life because that orchestra, more than almost any other I could think of, they were so unbelievably nurturing, so helpful in their Constant criticism, but also constant encouragement. So I felt immediately embraced and shell-shocked at the same time. <laughs> I love Because that. they would say, you know, I would conduct an education concert, and, you know, from all sides of the orchestra, people would say, oh, that was really good, that one thing you did. And here's a list of the 17 other things that were absolutely terrible, and you've got to fix them for the next show tomorrow, right? Right, right. So, it was a fantastic way to learn, sort of under fire, but mm-hmm. you're also learning from the best. And m- more to the point, especially in those times, I think still now, but that was a golden period. It, it, really it was, was after yeah. George Zell, but it was mm-hmm. a golden period for the Cleveland Orchestra. And being around them for five years was an entire education in and of itself. I mean, it was, you learned how to live 
in music and with music, with the organization uh, of an orchestra, worrying about budgets, worrying about schedules, worrying about touring, mm. but also worrying about personnel issues, worrying about uh, how best to manage rehearsals versus performances, how to, to, how to uh, encourage new audiences, all of it. And it was, it was an immersion into the best of how, what an orchestra possibly could be. And that, incredibly, um, I was, I was uh, lucky enough to to experience and so I really um, but I have to give credit you asked how I got my start that audition was organized by the Exxon Arts Endowment program isn't that marvelous and that it's too bad that that's not that there that no longer exists yeah but um, yeah. but it's, so just as a little aside I in Kansas City for instance have assistant conductors and I've been very lucky because we've auditioned some really great people and mm-hmm. I've had a, a different one every two, three years, sometimes four years if they were really doing well. I don't... The the other lucky thing is that the Cleveland Orchestra did not say, okay, your stint is up. You're no longer the Exxon Arts Endowment conducting assistant. They graduated me to assistant conductor and then associate conductor, and they gave me more and more conducting until by the end I was doing uh, subscription weeks. I was doing their... um, summer program at the Blossom Music Festival. I was mm. doing runouts. Mm. I was organizing and narrating all the education concerts. I was doing all the radio broadcasts. I mean, the whole fabric of what it meant, uh, of, of of what that orchestra was about, I was embedded in. Absolutely. So that was really, um, that was really great. And did you feel at the end of that time that you had actually got hold of the specifics as Max Rudolph spoke about? So one of his favorite stories, because he, he did revere George Zell, who was an extraordinarily close friend of his. And Zell, not the most uh, balletic or, or uh, natural conductors, but a great conductor. Yeah. Zell once said to him, after a performance of an opera in Prague, um, you know... I think I'm starting finally really to be able to get the result from a performance, from an orchestra in a performance that I really want. And he'd been doing it for about 25, 30 years. So <laughs> when, when Rudolph first saw any kind of performance of mine in school, he said to me, I'm not sure that you're a born conductor. And of course, I was deflated completely. And he said... Um, I think I'm a born conductor, but George Zell was not a born conductor, and he was by far the greater conductor than I was. Fascinating. So he said to me, being a born conductor just means you have to work harder, but it it means nothing for the long run. It just is. And, and in fact, he was very suspicious of people who had a natural yeah. physical mm-hmm. gesture with nothing behind it. Exactly. So... I mean, he was a he was a very insightful teacher, and um, so whether I got the, sp- you know, you're you're always learning, you're always getting better, and um, I've been doing this now for oh god, thirty five years, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Um, you've done okay. Well, it just gets it always. You always find new things. I mean, you have to study, but you always find not only new things in the music, but new ways of. Approaching. approaching it so and isn't this the most marvelous thing about being an artist 
if you don't recreate yourself and reinvent yourself, then you're probably doing something wrong. Mm-hmm, exactly. And you need to be searching always. It sounds to me like you are a searcher and a born adventurer. Well, I like to think I'm curious, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm curious about repertoire. I'm curious about people. I also think that a lot of conductors make the mistake um, maybe less so now because times have changed. But the idea of seeing people in front of you, mm-hmm. each one who, having gone to school, mastered their instrument, enormous experience in other areas of making music and performance, mm-hmm. to treat them like this monolithic uh, mass in front of you that you are supposed to instruct is aside from being completely insulting, it's insane because you're losing all of that combined wisdom that could come to you off of which you yourself can feed, Mm -hmm. right? So music is all about, or music making is all about being on the breath and communicating the direction of the phrase and the meaning behind the notes. And if you don't have the ability to look at somebody in the eye and breathe and actually make that happen, then you're not really conducting. You're either being a bully or you're following them. Yeah, exactly. But the idea of being complicit with them and bringing them into uh, this feeling of let's all be in the boat together, rowing mm-hmm. in the same direction, and we're going to get here because listen to what just happened. Look what this guy just wrote on the page or this woman just wrote on the page. This is kind of amazing. Then everybody's perception changes and you get a completely different kind of playing and a different kind of performance. Wow. Well said, Michael Stern. Conductor Michael Stern brings his own brand of generosity, intellect, and passion to the conducting stage. It is a life that has come full circle in the world of music, and the Stanford Symphony is benefiting from his legacy. He and the Stanford Symphony are performing October 19th and 20th at the Palace Theater in Stanford, Connecticut. The program includes the tone poem Apu by Gabriella Lena Frank, who has been proclaimed as one of the 35 most significant women composers in history by the Washington Post. The Rachmaninoff Second Piano Concerto with the brilliant pianist Stephen Huff and the Tchaikovsky Symphony No. 4. Tickets are available at stamfordsymphony.org. Michael Stern, thank you for being on Center Stage. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down.